Franklin Graham is coming to Hickory this Thursday evening, 7 p.m., LP Friends Stadium. The event is sponsored by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and it continues a long tradition of public events designed to draw large crowds to hear the gospel. I plan to be there. I hope you will be there, and I hope you'll invite some others. We have some yard signs over in our Welcome Center if you'd like to take one home and put it in your yard to help promote this event. So as I wrote in our church newsletter a week before last, I'm aware of a, a range of responses within the Christian community, even in our own congregation, to the name Franklin Graham. The most common response is, he's not his father. And Franklin Graham would be the first one to agree. He's not trying to be Billy Graham. I have a lot of empathy for him because for the first 10 years or so of my ministry here at Corinth, I was still being compared to Dr. Althaus, who had died 25 years earlier. No, I'm not Dr. Althaus. I also have advanced empathy for whoever follows me, because after a long pastorate, somebody's going to say, like, the new pastor's not Bob Thompson, and I'm going to be going, like, praise the Lord. You need a different pastor after I'm gone. So I'm aware more than anyone that I am a flawed leader and messenger, and that is true of Franklin Graham. It was true of Billy Graham. It was true of Harry Althaus. And fortunately, God does his work through flawed messengers, or we would all be in trouble. So I ask you to support this Decision America event, even though Franklin does say some things that make me uncomfortable from time to time, differently than I would say them. But if you don't choose to support this event and invite people to this opportunity to hear Jesus, I have a question for you. What's your strategy to invite people to know Jesus? What's your evangelistic strategy if this one doesn't work for you? So that's like this is a great opportunity where some people will want to be there and many people will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Franklin Graham believes his calling is that is very similar to that of Ezekiel. There are two different passages in the book of Ezekiel where God comes to Ezekiel and designates him as a watchman. In a few moments, I'm going to give you some characteristics of a watchman who is effective, but among those qualities is not the word popular or unanimous support or perfect. Nor is it that the watchman's message needs to line up exactly with my message. Rather, that the watchman believes with all of his or her heart, I have a message for you from God. And so we come to Ezekiel chapter 33, one of these places where Ezekiel is designated as a watchman. Now, there are three main sections to Ezekiel. And for those of you who like context, this is your moment. Everybody else can come back in a moment. But Ezekiel is 48 chapters. It's divided into three parts. The first 24 chapters are foretelling the judgment on the nation of Judah and the capital of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. The next eight chapters actually reflect uh, God's judgment on the nations around Israel. And the purpose of that judgment is given to us in chapter 28 When God says, I want my people to live after the restoration, I want them to live in security and prosperity, and in order to do so, I'm going to deal with your neighbors as well. So I want you to be free from malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. So that's the eight chapters after 24, and then starting with uh, chapter 33, 
we begin to turn the corner in the book. And in chapter 33, the verse right after Pastor Amy stopped reading, not her fault, that's where we asked her to stop reading, but had she read one more verse, we would have gotten to the verse in Ezekiel where the scripture says, Jerusalem has fallen. And a single fugitive messenger comes to Ezekiel uh, foretelling a whole uh, lot of others who will come, the refugees, the third wave of refugees from Jerusalem to Babylon. So when God comes to Ezekiel in our text and calls him a watchman, nobody in ancient times needed an explanation of what, what a watchman is. You may think of a watchman as a night watchman, which is similar but the bottom line is that in those days there were walled cities, but cities went to sleep at night, and especially under the cover of darkness, it was dangerous for a city to be vulnerable to an approaching enemy, whether it was a single enemy or maybe even an army. So they would station a watchman up on the wall, and the watchman's role, the watchman's mission was to warn the city with a loud trumpet if there was danger headed that way. So a watchman requires several qualifications. A watchman has to be observant and vigilant and discerning because not everything that moves out there is a danger to the city. Accountable, decisive when it does come time to warn. Courageous. A watchman has to be credible, persistent, and accurate. We all remember the story of Aesop, one of Aesop's fable about the boys who cried wolf. And after a while, nobody pays attention to the boy who cries wolf because he keeps crying it so often. So the watchman has to know this is a real threat and there's danger here. So the danger has to be real and the message, the warning must be clear. Once one accepts the role of watchman, there is an incredible awesome responsibility. And this is what God says to Ezekiel in our text here. Your role as Israel's watchman requires that you speak up. I've given you this message. You have a responsibility to convey it to the people. So when God designates Ezekiel as a watchman, the call is accompanied by a stern warning. Ezekiel, if I tell you this and you do not warn them, they will still die in their sins but I will hold you accountable as well. But Ezekiel, if I tell you what to say, and you speak up as a watchman, and they do not listen, that's their responsibility, but I will not hold you accountable. So a watchman is not responsible for what people do with the message. A watchman is responsible for speaking up. History is full of examples of unheeded watchmen. Adlai Stevenson warned President Kennedy in November of 1963 not to go to Dallas, Texas. It was too dangerous. Cyril Evans warned the Titanic of dangerous icebergs ahead. John O'Neill warned the Bush administration about Yemeni terrorists plotting to hijack planes in 2001. President Roosevelt's office received a warning of Japanese plans to attack the Hawaiian Islands three days before Pearl Harbor. And in 1905, a man by the name of Akatsuni Amemura warned Japan that a major earthquake would strike within 50 years, and if Japan did not prepare in the right places, 100,000 people would die. And in 1923, there was an earthquake, and 120,000 Japanese died because they did not heed the warning of the watchman. 
In each case, the ultimate responsibility did not lie with the watchman who said, this is what I know, and I'm going to warn you about it. It's sobering to be a watchman. It's sobering to be a pastor or a parent or a teacher. And it's not always easy to discern when or what to say or how to say it. James says, not many of you should become teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. James understood the role of a watchman. So if the responsibility of the watchman is to speak up, the responsibility of the hearers is to shape up. At least that's the case with Ezekiel's ministry. Ezekiel is off the hook if he issues a clarion call, but the people have to shape up. Chapter 33 largely repeats an earlier message from chapter 18. The message of the earlier chapter was every individual is responsible and we don't pass down responsibility from father to son or son to his child, right? It, each person is responsible for their own obedience to God. Now, the message here in chapter 33 is different. It's about past behavior versus present behavior versus future behavior. So Ezekiel is saying, if you used to be good, but now you're bad, your former goodness doesn't carry over. And if you're good now and you turn bad, your present goodness isn't enough to rescue you from judgment. So how many politicians and celebrities and business icons have had to learn that a lifetime of achievement can be wiped away because they don't continue consistently? Lori Loughlin was one of the darlings of Hallmark movies until she was caught up in a college admission scandal, and almost immediately her movies were taken off the air. Antonio Brown was a star in the NFL until sexual assault allegations cost him opportunities with two different teams. And Robin Hayes was on the front page of the Charlotte Observer this past Friday, went from elder party statesman to a courtroom when a judge asked him, are you guilty of a $2 million bribery scheme? The answer wasn't, look, judge, I've done a lot of great things for the state. The answer was, yes, sir. So Ezekiel says if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, they will die for it. And if a wicked person turns from their wickedness and does right, they will live by doing so. So we tend to get caught up in debates over eternal security and can you lose your salvation. And those are the wrong questions to impose on this text. The right question is this, am I personally relying on yesterday's righteousness to cover today's sin? Well, it doesn't matter what I do now because I've been a really good person. So we concoct excuses for dismissing the watchman. And one of our favorites is that the watchman is flawed. I don't like some things that watchman says. And Ezekiel says, like, I'm flawed as well, but you need to hear the message that God has given to me. So the people say, as we are prone to say, that's not fair. God isn't being just. I don't deserve all this judgment. And in an earlier sermon, we noted that Ezekiel likes to say, like, you are not putting God in the dock. You're not responsible for judging God. He always does what is right, and if you knew what God knows... You would trust what God does. If you think Ezekiel is being um, unreasonable by harping incessantly about sin and judgment, let me compare it to a term that you might know, probably do know, called intervention. Intervention happens when an addict's behavior and the consequences have become so severe that those who are most trusted and loved gather around that person and say, we have agreed together that we will no longer do anything that enables your addiction. 
It's cutting off right now, and you need to go to rehab. So is that fair? Is it right? From the addict's perspective, usually not. But that's not the point. The point is that we're going to do what's necessary to give you an opportunity to live. So think of Ezekiel as an intervention specialist who is saying, look, I'm giving you, the children of Israel, one more opportunity to repent in order that you might live. Because if you don't, you will die. That's the essence of the message from Ezekiel chapter 33. So what do we do with it? Well, I think it's a mistake, as I've said before, to make a direct comparison between 21st century America and 7th century B.C. Israel. Yes, we all have a responsibility to speak up, but God gave a direct revelation to Ezekiel. So not everybody that says, I have a word from the Lord, is necessarily speaking uh, for God, and many people think they are speaking for God, but that may not necessarily be true. I, I can't tell you that God gives me direct revelations in the way that he gave to Ezekiel. It requires a lot of discernment and patience to know when to speak up and when to shut up about somebody else's sins. And I will admit to you that I've probably made more watchman mistakes in my life, meaning speaking when I shouldn't have spoken or being silent when I should have spoken than maybe any other kind. So the situation has changed and the people has changed and we don't always know when we're to speak up and when this is a message from God to shape up. But let me tell you what hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. And so each time in Ezekiel we're looking for what does this teach us about God and what I discovered here in this text was the desire of God. Did you miss it? In verse 11... As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. These words remind me of what Peter says in the New Testament. Again, it's a very consistent message in the Bible. Peter says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. The desire of God is life. The reason he wants people to repent is because he doesn't want them to be destroyed, to destroy themselves. He doesn't want them to be judged. The desire of God is life. Now, is he talking about physical life or spiritual life? Yes. Abundant life now or eternal life with him? Yes personal happiness and fulfillment, or healthy relationships in the community? Yes. The Hebrew word is shalom. The New Testament equivalent, when translated into English, is just peace. It's what God wants. He wants peace in this life and peace forever with him. And the Jewish people were to experience their shalom crashing and literally burning, and God ached because of the devastation of a dream that he himself had promised to them, that they would live in security and peace in the land of Israel. And everything God had promised them, from the land flowing with milk and honey to that prosperity and security under the leadership of their king, harmony and hope was his desire for them. I want you to live in this place. I want you to enjoy all that I have given to you and promised to you. 
And God was most deeply grieved that it was all going up in smoke because of their disobedience to their part of the covenant. If you don't hear God weeping in Ezekiel over the demise of his people, you have missed the passion of the prophet. But friends, all of that is a setup for the gospel. It's a setup because that vision of joy and peace and meaning and life and hope and right relationship with God and others is still God's desire, but it's no longer God's desire for one little nation or one little city or one little temple. It's actually his desire for the whole world. And the rebellion and idolatry which grieved the heart of God because it brought death is no longer limited to 12 tribes bowing down before physical statues. The New Testament describes it as a universal problem with our self-absorption, our idolatry of self with universal consequences. And that's why Jesus came. The message that Jesus came shouting to the masses at the beginning of his ministry was repent. Same message. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus began to unfold the kingdom and what it looks like and the righteousness and the joy and the life that is there. And then Jesus knows that still his message during most of his ministry sets an impossible goal, a standard that nobody can achieve. And so Jesus says, yeah, that's part of the setup too. And I come to give my life in exchange for yours so that death doesn't ever have to have the last word and that life is possible through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. God is still saying to us, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And what's new is that as Jesus' life and death and resurrection unfolds, God has made a way in Christ for all of us to have our sins completely wiped clean. And friends, that's why all of this connects to the table of the Lord today. We gather around here today to hear Ezekiel again, to remind us that we too must repent, that we too must then confess Jesus as Savior and Lord and embrace and hold on to, and that when we gather around the table of the Lord, we are simply remembering that through Jesus, he has made it possible for us not to face death, not to face condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But to celebrate again the heart of God, the desire of God, that we would live now and forever. Let us pray. I'd like to invite you to take your bulletin and join me in a prayer of confession that follows the sermon on the left side of your bulletin. And this is once again our response for the messages, but it's also our preparation for communion. For we should never come to the table of the Lord with the presumption, even knowing that Christ died for our sins, we should never come with the presumption that somehow because we've trusted Jesus, uh, we just rush into this table and assume anything. That we come remembering, but we also come confessing again that this barrier is still in our hearts and yet it has been broken down by Christ. And all of that is encapsulated in this confession of sin. Would you join me, please, in unison? Holy and heavenly Father, I hear the words rebellion, defiance, and idolatry. I confess they describe my heart, my words, and my actions the way you see them. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. You are my only hope. By your life, death, and resurrection, I am known, loved, and forgiven. Holy Spirit, pierce my soul with my own unworthiness. 
and open my eyes to my sins. Give me freedom that comes only when I admit my guilt before you. Amen.